This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Need for Speed edition. It's Wednesday, June 1st, 2022. On today's show... Oh, man, they really did it this time. Top Gun Maverick, the sequel to the iconic 80s blockbuster. Do I even need to say it? It stars Tom Cruise, but not Kelly McGillis. Anyway, we will discuss. And then the comedian George Carlin is the subject of a new HBO documentary, George Carlin's American Dream. And as well, he's become a prop in our ongoing culture wars. What really isn't? We discuss the many strange vicissitudes of Carlin's life an afterlife with Jason Bailey. And finally, the defamation trial featuring Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Maybe it's it's so many things that just picking through that will take up the bulk of our segment. But among the many things it may be is Me Too, This Apotheosis, or Gravestone. We discuss the most freighted celebrity trial, I think, maybe since OJ. We'll discuss that, too. Joining me today is Julia Turner, the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Julia, hey. Hello. Well, I should say very quickly, Julia, you'll be dropping out uh, during our Carlin segment, uh, but otherwise joining us for everything else. And of course, Dana Stevens is the uh, film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. How are you doing? Excellent. Okay. Well, loud, brash, towel-snappingly homoerotic. The original Top Gun was, well, it was very many things at once. It cemented the blockbuster as the defining business model of Hollywood going forward. And uh, I'd say, furthermore, it claimed Reaganism as something far bigger than just politics. If you think you're dead, yes, that is actually a line from the original Top Gun became the defining ethic of the decade. Uh, the movie also made Tom Cruise uh, over from an up-and-coming, really intriguing actor into one of the world's biggest movie stars, maybe one of the biggest of all time. And here we are, nearly 40 years later, and neither Tom Cruise nor American Inanity have aged a day. Do I even need to summarize the plot of Top Gun Maverick? You, I'm sure you know it already. Maverick is older but unbowed, which is to say he's no wiser. The brass still hates him, though deep down they love and envy him. There's a weird, vague, forever war mission that in the end only Maverick can lead. There are tons of soundtrack callbacks and archival clips of the original film. Oy, the movie stars Cruz and Jennifer Connelly and Miles Teller as the son of Goose. All right, as is often the case with some of these juggernaut properties, we don't get clips, we just get the trailer. Uh, We'll play some of that. And uh, in it, the first voice you're going to hear is John Hamm, who plays his uh, most skeptical superior. He's, I think he's great in this film. Let's uh, let's take a listen. Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let me be perfectly blunt. You are not my first choice. You are here at the request of Admiral Kazansky, AKA Iceman. He seems to think that you have something left to offer the Navy. What that is, I can't imagine. With all due respect, sir, I'm not a teacher. Just want to manage expectations. What the hell? Good morning, aviators. This is your captain speaking. And we're off. All right, Dana, let me start with you. Imagine my surprise as a student of the 1980s who thought, okay, the first Top Gun is just like a Reaganite concentrate, right? It's just all of the steroidal 
you know, brashness and immaturity of the era. Here we are 40 years later, we're doing nothing but paying for that turning point in our history. I hardly even need to enumerate how. Out comes the second movie. It seems to me like a just barely updated carbon copy of the first. And smart people love it. Are you one of them? <laughs> well, Steve, I feel like I I can't really decide how I feel about this movie until we have this conversation. You were the first person I wanted to talk to about it after coming out because, you know, of your your 80s knowledge base and your I knew you would have strong opinions one way or the other. There's something so repellent about the world of Top Gun as I remember it from the 1980s, and yet as you can see in my rave review of this new movie, it somehow, even though it remains just as politically offensive as it ever was, and just as sort of reliant on this on this very ambivalent figure in our pop culture, this you know undying masculine whatever he is kind of phallic symbol that is Tom Cruise. I loved the new movie. I thought it was just good popcorn cinema, and I was I was so ready to watch it again the minute I walked out of it. And it just reminded me of, you know, all of the sort of objectionable yet enjoyable um, Mm. mall movies of my youth and something about its um, removal in history from the Reagan era. Although, as I say in my review, it may just be that, you know, Reaganism is so deep in our DNA now that we can't even sense it around us anymore. But something about its removal from that era and its, I thought, really moving attempt to update some of the, um, the, the, the youthful folly of that first movie really worked for me. Like I cried twice in this movie and also just on a purely technical and craft level, found the editing of the flight sequences extraordinary and um, the action really, really well crafted. And I understand why it was a smash hit this weekend and got people back into theaters for, you know, basically in the biggest numbers as they have since the pandemic, practically. I don't know. But go ahead. Tear me down. Tell me that I'm reactionary and deluded and I need to have my consciousness raised. No, no, I'm not Dana. Come on. Come on. I'm not going to do that. I just have three words. Red pill Dana. Uh, (laughs) Julia. Um, I just need you to bounce off of that and explain to me, is this, is this everyone feel this way about this movie that it's somehow they're carried along by its, uh, you know, high wire exhilarations or something like, what is it? I don't, because personally I'm immune apparently. Totally loved it. (laughs) Ready to go out on the yacht with Jennifer Connelly and, uh, (laughs) duff around while she teaches me how to use a lanyard. Um, I think there's a couple ways to think about this movie and two of them frame the movie as a charming raffish underdog, which has always been the like benefit and problem with America, like our self-conception as the scrappy independents who threw off that mean old king and we're kind of retaining that idea through, you know, centuries of dominance and brutality. Um, so One way in which this film is an underdog and presents itself as an underdog is if you read any of the great features, and there were some interesting ones in the New York Times and The Ringer about how they actually pulled off this movie, this whole movie is like an Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible stunt Mm. in modern Hollywood. Like they, they, 
this crew of young actors who I found to be sort of charming and amusing and somehow the presence of one female pilot as though it was Paw Patrol <laughs> totally satisfied me. And I was like, well, Phoenix is there, so it's not sexist anymore. Um, anyway, like these, what these actors all signed up to do was like actually be sent on increasingly daredevil and insane flights at the behest of Tom Cruise, who in addition to being one of our foremost movie stars has become kind of like a stunt guru and God and, you know, famously loves to do as much as he can of the practical stunts in the various movies that he's in. So just making a movie like this almost entirely with practical effects itself is an underdog high wire act. And it, and you feel it, I think in the result, it doesn't mm. look like a big muddy gray cloud of bullshit. <laughs> it's beautiful in many, many respects. I mean, I, I love flying as long-term listeners of the show know flight is beautiful. Flight is the ultimate human underdog achievement. Right. And it just glories mm. in, in the need for speed in a way that's like actually aesthetically lovely. So that's underdog. Number one, underdog. Number two is that this movie reminded me that Tom Cruise is a great actor. Like, I've I've been so used to Tom Cruise, the bionic stunt machine who kind of steers clear of human roles because when he tries to be human, it reminds us what a weird actual underlying human Tom Cruise is with the Scientology and the wives and the Katie Holmes and the whatever the hell. Um, so I think most of the movies... I feel I've seen him in in the last 10 years have just been like him running with his like chop, 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 chop running style and saving the world. And in this movie, he gets to like slow down and like look wistful at his dead friend's son and romance a slender bartender in preppy clothes and like hop out the window like it's risky business and have, as Dana noted, a twinkle in his eye and uh, totally hook, line and sinker, hook, line and sinker. Give us the alternate, Steve. I mean, uh, let me say, first of all, what I liked about the movie. I liked the aerial stunts were amazing. I agree that it looks astonishing and the sheer amount of ingenuity and daring do that went into making those sequences, um, you know, has to be marveled at. I totally agree with that. The second thing is it's no accident that Christopher McQuarrie is one of the big credits, creative credits on this film. You know, he brings enormous amounts of intelligence and craft to, so far as I can tell, everything he touches. As soon as he got involved in the Mission Impossible series, it became very tight and um, actually taught and and engaging in a way that I don't think it had been previously. Um, uh, I can't even begin to tell you what I didn't like about the movie. So much of it I just find completely preposterous. But I, I, I think it's more interesting to say why, in some sense. Um, you know, as a person whose sensibility was formed watching the great, great movies of the 1970s in the theater, you know, I felt betrayed by this movie. It's very, it's an anti, it, it is definitely an anti-director project. It was avowedly that by its producers, Bruckheimer and Simpson. They wanted someone they could boss around whose aesthetic was that of a, of a TV, a, a commercial maker, which is what they got in uh, Scott, who directed the original. It's essentially an advertisement not only for Cruise the movie star and American jingoism, but for American male immaturity, right? And it's it, it, like almost as a moral, almost as a morality, like arguing for its um, superiority to an adult view of the world. Like I just thought it was a danger, like literally a dangerous movie. But I also just find Dana. I, I'm sorry. I just I need you to defend it a little more because I find 
movies without much by way of plot, character development, or humor very hard to connect with. I mean, I don't think you could you could certainly fault this movie on being short of plot. I don't think it's short of either character development or humor. That was somewhat what surprised me about it. And in fact, everything you were saying about the original Top Gun, I more or less agreed with at the time. Uh, at, granted, at the time, I mean, I was an utter snob who didn't want to have any pleasure at the movies. <laughs> so I think I was immune to whatever pleasure that it offered at the time and was not expecting anything from this new one. In fact, it seemed to me like, why do we need a legacy sequel for this other utterly dated Reagan era movie that doesn't speak to us anymore. And and to the extent it does, you know, speaks to all the wrong parts of America. And I thought this movie within the, you know, within the limitations of the popcorn blockbuster genre did address those things. And that it was about uh, obsolescence in a way, you know, that it is a movie that again and again stresses this theme that Maverick never grew up. You know, Maverick is a mm. failure within the Navy. He was never promoted past the rank of captain. He's never been able to keep a marriage or, or relationship going. I don't think that the movie lionizes those oh things. Oh my God, you're crazy. That's the quiddity by which Maverick is o- the only man who can carry out this impossible mission. It's he's preserved this moral, moral ultimately moral morally superior core of immaturity against the grown-up world which hews to arbitrary rules and roles and I, I don't know i can't be rational about this movie oh i'm i'm with steve on that i think i think every single like setting him up as the child idiot um is like self-defense against critics like us <laughs> to the degree this movie even cares about critics like us because Brilliant. it's an absolute lionization of like, no, we need the guy who's just going to grin on the motorcycle while he rides in from the Mojave desert to his next assignment. And we need the guy who's, um, I mean, like, I don't know. I, I think the movie is when you look at its politics, um, an apologia for a, and and a canny but ultimately sentimental one for a type of man American manhood that was formerly lionized in an uncomplicated fashion and that has now um, been complicated in the way the culture understands it. And this movie would like to blow all of that away in a bunch of jet fumes. Mm. Um, and you know, um, for a minute, I was happy to stand on a windy aircraft carrier deck and pretend the pretend they were gone as well so but i don't like myself for it (laughs) (laughs) listen i want to be clear i really admire the bravura action sequences and the climax of the movie is the classic 20 to 25 minute one where i typically look at my watch and i'm like this is going to be a slog in part because you're right julia like the geography of action sequences very often is so the fundamental question of who's where and where are they going and where are they in relation to everything else that's happening they're chaotically busy to the point where you lose yourself and your spatial orientation completely that did not happen in this movie the same way Macquarie's touches on the screenplay because he's very good about setting up an improbable task and then having micro tasks along the way that help you fulfill the larger task and then bringing it to this you know orgasmic climax um he's brilliant at that the same way apparently joseph kaczynski is brilliant the director is brilliant at orienting you the camera the machinery the star and the plot in relation to one another i totally agree and i think that that's ultimately why people are so high on this film 
Yeah, I mean, I I think Kaczynski does an amazing job directing this and just the clarity of like, what is the thing they're trying to do? How are they practicing yes. for it? When yes. they're practicing fails, what is at stake? And ca- how can they actually pull it off? Like, there was a way in which the whole movie reminded me of the like essential physics of flight. Like the movie felt like a return mm. to like the ultimate practical effect of like getting an earthbound thing to achieve liftoff it's like well if you do this set of things in the right order with military precision and a set of like you know ground checks along the way to make sure all the parts are lined up correctly then the thing can fly and so many of the blockbusters we see now just like fail to do that and there's like a weird cloud of computer goo towards the end and you're looking at your watch (laughs) and this movie you know, it it like achieves liftoff with, you know, the the old fashioned basic, you know, planar physics, and uh, there's just something satisfying about that. All right. Well, the movie is Top Gun Maverick. Uh, it's in theaters everywhere. It's uh, bigger than my opinion of it. That's for sure. Go check it out and shoot us an angry email. Oh, and also, by the way, a quick reminder, Julia, you'll be sitting out for the next segment, but coming back after that. All right. Let's uh, let's move on. All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business on this show. Dana, what uh, what do we have? Stephen, our only item of business this week is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment, which will be about Ray Liotta, who sadly passed away last week at the age of 67. Uh, very unexpected, and he was still in the midst of making several projects, one of which will have to remain unfinished. We'll just revisit his career, and I think each of us are going to talk about some of our favorite titles, the first thing that came to mind when we thought about and mourned Ray Liotta. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you can stay tuned for that conversation after our show. And of course, if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus okay back to the show all right well there's a new uh two-part documentary on hbo about the great comedian george carlin it's called george carlin's american dream carlin of course was the great and subversive comedian who came into his own in the crossfade of two decades the 1950s and the 1960s and you could really argue that's the origins of our contemporary and sort of forever culture war right there. I mean, we divided into like the Nixon voters, the non-Nixon voters, the protesters, the counter-protesters, the hipsters in the squares. Well, Carlin was writing all of those lines in a very curious and idiosyncratic way. He was significantly older than the protesters and the hippies, but he was also a deeply subversive sensibility caught within an establishment media, which was just paying his way. I mean, he was making a very good living churning out corny variety show bits Um, and being a spokesperson for various products, but he was chafing badly. Something about the essence of him as a a creative artist really chafed badly against that. Um, As someone close to Carlin in the documentary says, at that point in his career, it was, well, which George is going to win, the caustic truth-teller on the side of salutary anarchy or the straight trying to make it in a still very straight and establishment medium? Okay, in the very apposite clip we're about to hear, you'll hear Patton Oswald, the comedian and writer, um, talking about just this conflict uh, within Carlin. You watched the arc of a creative person that just stayed with it till they broke through to that next evolution that he went through. Because it felt like, yes, I'm a, you know me as this goofy guy that is a wonderful wordsmith and I can always find ways to say things. And I'm now, I have been pushed to the point 
by what I have seen in my years where none of that is there anymore and I need to tell you exactly what is going on. We can't get rid of this war mentality from our public life. We got a war on poverty, war on crime, war on cancer, war on litter, war on drugs. Did you ever notice we don't have a war on homelessness? No war on homelessness. You know why? You know why? I'll tell you why, because there's no money in it. There's no money in that problem. Nobody stands to get rich off of that problem. You find a solution to homelessness where the businessmen and the politicians can steal a couple of million dollars each, you'll see the streets of America begin to clear up pretty fast. Mm. <laughs> Preach, right? Uh, okay, we're joined by Jason Bailey, the film critic and the author of Fun City Cinema in New York and the movies that made it. I'm so psyched to read it um, very soon. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It seems to me reading your wonderful piece in Slate about this, that there's, uh, um, you know, your point really is that there's more than one way to look at Carlin as a political conscience of the time. So he's going through a renaissance because of social media and clips of his being shared because of their like searing relevance to things that are happening today, but they're being shared by both the left and right. He's more obviously a figure of the left in some sense, but if you were to look at the whole picture, for example, some people might want to cancel him. He's actually way more complex and ambivalent a figure than really almost anybody, even this wonderful in-depth documentary now on HBO is giving him credit for. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I think it's really significant that, you know, when you look at the history as it's laid out in the documentary, that Carlin really sort of became overtly uh, political and sort of had this this metamorphosis into this scathing social commentator towards the end of the Reagan era um, and really sort of confirming this idea that so many of the battle lines were drawn that were still on either side of during the Reagan years, you know, that that, that was really the point at which these issues were hashed out, where the, the, the sides were chosen and where these these routines and these this commentary that he had remains so easy to excerpt and put on Twitter or on Instagram or on your social media of choice because the specifics may have changed, but the the, the broad ideological issues remain the same. And mm-hmm. so it's very easy to say, see, it's still it still matters, it's still relevant. It's also, you know, a vast simplification of him as a person and of his point of view, which is part of what I get into in this piece. This idea that, you know, he was a messy person. He was complicated. His ideas were not an easy division between, you know, contemporary notions of left and right. Um, but I think that's also what makes him interesting as an artist. And the so I really feel like the only sort of disservice that we're doing by continuing to sort of sample him and meme him the way we are is to presume that he would still feel exactly the same way on every single one of these issues. When, as we see in the documentary, his views and his persona changed constantly throughout his life and throughout his career. This, you know, uh, Judd Apatow produced documentary that runs to about four total hours on HBO is divided into two parts. The first is what my intro sort of emphasized, which is you know, the original, original culture where you could argue in the 1960s between hips and squares or whatever. But as you say, quite rightly, especially in the second episode, you know, Carlin refound himself. Like he, he was kind of lost as an establishment straight trying to fit in on variety show TV and then found himself as a kind of hippie coffee house 
right. circuit, uh, you know, um, guy. But then there was a second moment of getting lost where Carlin became old news towards the end of the 70s. He was doing really re- tired material as SNL and various other things became hip. He was now the fuddy-duddy. And he refound himself in the, in the Reagan 80s because he understood something deeper about the ethos of the time, which didn't break down along hip and square anymore precisely. It was much more about, it was larger and deeper. It was so much more thoughtful. It was about how capitalism is distorting all of us in some way. And he wanted to run counter to that. And that doesn't, it not only doesn't graft on hip square, it doesn't really graft on left, right. So to appropriate him now in some sense is almost inevitably to misappropriate him. Yeah, that makes sense to me. You know, and I think he saw that, you know, some of the most timeless material he was doing in this era was about how often these issues, they can be important, but they can also be used as distractions. And really that so much of what the American dream that he's talking about and that's referenced in the title was, was about division among anyone below, you know, the top 1%. And the, you know, which again was an idea that was kind of ahead of its time before we were talking about the 1%. But this idea that, you know, it's a club and you ain't in it was one mm-hmm. of his his key quotes and one of the ones that, that we hear again in the documentary. It's a big club and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged, and nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. This idea that there's a ruling class that many of us are sort of under the clutches of and that a lot of the big ideas of the time, whether they be culture ideas, whether they be militarism, whether they be capitalism, sort of all fall under that rubric. And that kind of became a guiding principle and a worldview for him. Jason, something that struck me watching this this four-hour documentary about Carlin, which uncovered so many parts of his career, especially the early parts that we really don't think much about, is that there is a through line in spite of his ability to metamorphose and reinvent himself. And the doc really shows how he did that multiple times during his career. But there's a really, really solid through line of him as a as a prophetic truth-telling figure. And that's, I think, what made him radical, you know, when he first made that political turn. I mean, really, even in the 60s, right? I mean, even talking about yeah. Muhammad Ali refusing the draft, there's an incredible riff that he has that's in the documentary about that, about how Muhammad Ali doesn't want to go and kill people. He wants to stay and beat people up. And there's this incredible right. line of, of Carlin saying, he does draw the line somewhere. <laughs> right. uh, I'll beat him up, but I don't want to kill him. <laughs> and the government told him, well, if you won't kill him, we won't let you beat him up. <laughs> it's an incredible kind of expose, right, of just of, of yeah. the um, absurdity of the, the, the draft at that moment in the Vietnam War. Um and although what free speech meant in each phase of his career and in each phase of American history he was living through kept on changing and obviously now has taken a different and somewhat sinister turn, right? People talking about mm-hmm. absolute freedom of speech, that always seemed to be something he was for. And that makes you understand why he can be appropriated by, you know, libertarians and right and left and all these different figures now. And I wonder if you could talk about that radicality that he maintained and specifically in relationship to the many comedians. Uh, we heard one, Patton Oswalt, the, the talking head comedian interviews throughout this documentary that just show the incredible veneration that other younger comedians held him in. Yeah, I mean, I think there was, you know, the, the thing that continues to attract 
comedians to him and to to keep sort of holding him so high among the sort of hall of fame is this i think the same thing that uh that makes contemporary comedians continue to hold richard pryor to that same sort of uh perch um and richard pryor who who also went through very similar sort of crisis of conscious and of persona and changed all throughout his career as well which is this this idea that he was always guided by a search for a true comic voice and to speak from a, a, from a position of honesty on stage. And that took on a lot of different voices throughout his career. And you can see that in the way that he sort of struggled to find that true comic voice. But you can also see it in the way that, that he was caught into throughout his career and now especially by contemporary comedians. The thing that I think is interesting about him as a, as a free speech warrior is that on one hand, you will see, you know, sort of one division of uh, contemporary commentators and comedians hold him up as a free speech absolutist. And you can find, you know, quotes that seem to hold to that view. Feminists want to control your language. Feminists want to tell you how to talk. And they're not alone. They're not alone. I'm not picking on the feminists. They got a lot of company in this country. There's a lot of groups, a lot of institutions in this country want to control your language. Tell you what you can say and what you can't say. But you can also find interviews in, you know, there was a a well-circulated clip a while back where he was talking about Andrew Dice Clay, but he's talking about the idea that Yes, you can talk about anything as a comedian, but to really be what a comedian is and should be, the idea of punching down sort of flies in the face of what a real comedian and cultural commentator does. The thing that I, that I find unusual, and it's, you know, it's not a criticism so much, but his targets are underdogs. And comedy traditionally has picked on people in power, people who abuse their power. Uh, women and gays and immigrants are kind of, to my way of thinking, underdogs. So... None of these things are easy. You know, none of these things are, are, are sort of simple to break into boxes. And that, I think, is also sort of what makes him continue to be fascinating to us, is that you can grab onto different parts of his persona. You can grab onto different ideas that he held at different points uh, and sort of cling to those. Jason, listening to you, that's brilliant. It occurs to me that there's a, a comparison here. We don't have to explore it, but just briefly with Orwell, which is just claimed by absolutely everybody because everybody is in the end a narcissist who believes that they stand against hypocrisy and can't. And right. of course, <laughs> that's not the way that's the way human personality works, but it's not the way reality works, right? I mean, it's it's just too easy to embrace the subversive figure in a sense. Does it? I I admire Carlin almost to no end, but it sometimes worries me, and I I wonder if it does you too. That you know, in standing so against those things, it was very hard to know precisely what he stood for. But maybe that's just not the job of a comedian. Well, it, you know, it's tricky because like, and this is delved into, I think, in a in a really smart way in the documentary towards the end because he continued to evolve throughout the career, and towards the end he was veering into a persona of, of almost straight up nihilism that uh, put some people off, you know, and, and there is some conversation in the documentary was how much of that was real, how much of that was the sort of continuing evolution of a persona, which I think is, is a good question because it does leave you saying, okay, well, if there is no hope, then why are we here? Mm -hmm. But I, but there's also a, a pretty compelling point made that, you know, that there 
that in some ways that sort of nihilism was almost a defense mechanism, that that was him sort of a lifetime of being hopeful and being burned uh, and sort of how it manifested itself. Um, I think the thing that's important to bear in mind, though, anytime we're doing these sort of comparisons and talking about contemporary figures and their sort of uh, predecessors is to keep in mind that with Carlin, with Pryor, with Lenny Bruce, with even Sam Kennison, it was never solely about pushing buttons. It was never solely about shock value. They were never using these words, phrases, ideas solely to get a rise out of people. And I think that's what too many of the quote unquote anti-woke comedians and commentators now are doing and, and, and failing to understand is that it's not enough to just push buttons. It's not enough to just say the thing you're not supposed to say. You actually have to have something to say in addition to that. Jason, I'm glad that you brought up this this late career turn toward nihilism, because I think that was the most fascinating part of the documentary to me, especially in light of everything that had come before and you know right. how much you had seen him as really kind of a tortured artist, you know, somebody who periodically threw it out his life, went through these painful moltings, you know, where he kind of had to get closer and closer to the core of what he was thinking. And again and again, he describes he's really, really great at describing his own craft in interviews. And yeah. again and again, he describes this thing of, you know, wanting to... Um, um, to become more himself, you know, to to expose his thinking. And there's a great thing he says about, no, I don't want to make the audience think. Nothing could be deadlier than trying to make an audience think. I want them to witness me thinking, you know? Yes. Um, and And in relation to that late career turn toward what seems like nihilism on the surface, it seems like there's there's a there's a truth to that too, right? There's a sense in which that final molting that he underwent, you know, was him exposing something something so dark that it made the audience sort of have to take the next step. And Apatow says that in a in a Q and A about the the series that's really fascinating, where his reading of this very very dark material that Carlin was doing toward the end of his life was not that he had given up hope, but that he was passing the torch in a way. Yeah. Well, Jason Bailey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Please, please come back soon. Thank you for having me. All right, and the documentary, by the way, once again, uh, it's a two-parter on HBO. It's called George Carlin's American Dream. All right, well, it's hard to know exactly where to begin with the subject. It's both so huge and so messy, but the defamation trial uh, featuring Johnny Depp and Amber Heard is shaping up as uh, many things at once. The most epic, he said. She said uh, it's brought social media and TikTok into play in full force. There are super fans probably what are bots, uh, paid armies of uh, PR, flacks, men's rights activists, all mobilized in one cause or another. Uh, people are wondering, I think quite rightly, is this going to represent the apotheosis or perhaps the end of Me Too? This is among the most massively overdetermined things that we probably ever talked about on the show. So maybe it's best to start with something simple but true, a discrepancy between the substance of the legal question at hand, whether... 12 words that Amber Heard published in an editorial are actually legally defamatory and all the various Michigas now surrounding the trial, i.e. the culture war that breaks out around virtually anything in America right now down to whether the sky is blue. So uh, I think it's worth just reading those sentences that she published in the Washington Post in December 2018. Then two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse on and on and on and on. You don't even need the full sentence because that is the essence of this trial. And yet, Julia, you know, you're you're an arts and entertainment editor at a prominent U.S. publication in Los Angeles. That is not really in some sense, or it has not become the essence of this. You must be both 
editing, assigning pieces and kind of dodging bullets and landing planes about this story. It's pretty big, right? Yeah, and it's a little confusing how big it is, and it's been a little bit surprising how big it is, I think, to some of us, and I'll count myself in that number. And there is a way in which it seems like these two public figures, two actors, um, have been arguing about these charges and claims in some public forum or other for a number of years now, including in a, a defamation case in Britain that Johnny Depp lost, um, which is why it surprised me at least that this particular trial has become a source of incredible fascination for lots of people. Uh, and I think there's a set of people for whom it was not a source of fascination who were then surprised by the number of people for whom it is a source of fascination. And that's one of the dynamics that is at play. A couple of factors result in that. First of all, the American judge did not dismiss the case and allowed it to proceed. Also, she allowed the proceedings to be televised. Um, and we should probably note here that that a verdict is expected quite soon, possibly could happen in between the time we record this segment and you are listening to it, but there has not yet been one as we record. Um, and, you know, so every jot and tittle of the back and forth of this series of incredibly bleak allegations by Heard against Depp and... Um, you know, a set of counter allegations of Depp against Heard um, has been scrutinized by anybody who wants to watch. And the question is, who wants to watch? And it turns out that, yes, various kind of court TV type establishments, some of which seem to be streaming online or following every back and forth. Yes, we at the Los Angeles Times have been posting regularly about what's going on at the trial. There is substantial interest in it. But there also seems to be... Um, significant interest on video web platforms and to sort of turning the video that is produced around the trial into content of different kinds, whether it's legal analysis or Johnny Depp fan accounts or, um, you know, Amber Heard hate accounts or uh, anything else. And to the point where, you know, we occasionally let our kids watch YouTube um but my husband has been like saying no to all their YouTube requests for the, you know, the three specific accounts we let them watch. Cause every time he was looking over their shoulder, there were just weird macabre suggested videos assessing this trial in what seemed like a misogynistic fashion in the corner. Um, and Amanda Hess wrote a piece for the New York times about it, suggesting that the, the media dynamics around the trial reminded her of Gamergate, which I think is apt and troubling in that, there is a substantial online interest with a strong misogynistic bent in a topic that a lot of the mainstream press and media kind of can't figure out how to get a handle on. And there's an instinct to look away. And that instinct is perhaps a dangerous one because the dynamics at play here um, of kind of extreme uh, hostility toward this accuser uh, in really grotesque fashion are dynamics that could come back around in any in any old case are troubling here and might be troubling in many respects in the future. So that's my brief summary, not so brief summary. How'd I do? <laughs> that was, you You really broke that down well and and brought up some things that, that I think are important to take into account. For example, the fact that Depp 
chose this, right? I mean, he's the plaintiff. He's the person who brought the suit. And so he knew there was going to be discovery. He knew that there would be all kinds of material that would potentially make him look terrible. But, you know, he also knew that he has an impunity as a celebrity and as, you know, the male partner in the relationship and the more professionally powerful partner in the relationship. And I guess was willing to take the reputational hit in exchange for humiliating Amber Heard, which I is, I mean, I think he has basically said in, in texts that have been read out loud in the trial that, you know, that the point of this was to was to cause her, in his words, global humiliation humiliation. The maybe most shocking detail of this trial to me is that it is being televised and live streamed on YouTube. I just can't believe that the judge, who is a woman, the judge, his name is Penny Ascarate, presumably she's, you know, aware of the fact that social media can capitalize on trials of, you know, huge celebrities that are being live streamed. And that, of course, they're going to be turned into meme material and, and, you know, yellow journalism. And of course, they're going to have a chilling effect down the line on domestic violence survivors and their willingness to report, right? I mean, that we're basically seeing a woman be put in the stockades. And whoever you believe in their case, and it does seem like, you know, there is certainly bad behavior and some, you know, obfuscation and lying on both sides. And this particular case is is not a domestic violence case, but a defamation case, of course. Nonetheless, it just seems like this decision to make this a live streamable, you know, court TV spectacle was a terrible, terrible decision on the judge's part. And that, yes, we should not be looking away now that these terrible, ugly things are happening in the press. But many of these terrible, ugly things would not be happening if these people were given some privacy to have a trial about their own private affairs. Mm. Yeah, I I, I agree. I mean, here's where treading carefully here's where i'd begin i think once a person becomes like a real breathing complex human being becomes a representative in a side of a pre-existing conflict or much less war they suddenly need by their new admirers to be purged of all complexity in order to fulfill their newly symbolic function and this is as true of Amber Heard as it is for Ukraine. I mean, not to equate them, but there is just no such thing as the perfect victim. Like Ukraine did not bear the burden of being a perfectly Nazi-free society, which is a standard we in the United States can't even come close to hewing to in order to defend itself against the Russian invasion. And similarly, Amber Heard bears no responsibility to be the perfect victim in this instance. And like Ukraine, I think one can simply ask, in the absence of knowing all the facts, which none of us can or ever will, does one of these narratives appear on its face to be completely absurd? And I just find, personally, Johnny Depp's storytelling surrounding this absurd, and whether hers is somehow conflicted, or maybe the truth gets nipped and tucked here and there, or has been in the past at least, I would be crestfallen in ways that I could barely describe if she lost this case. Now, on to the larger question of we can't adjudicate that or the he said, she said, um, you know, uh, definitively on this show. But we can talk, just as you say, Julia, about the disgorging of this dark web misogyny into the light, which women journalists have been pounding the table and shouting from the rooftops since well before Trump when the 4chan stories started breaking and the degree of persecution and online harassment was off the charts and that was that was that was it that was as much as racism and and xenophobia 
nativism are central to MAGA. Misogyny, you could argue, is as close to the heart of it, if not the very beating heart of it, as it is, by the way, for the Russian project or the Putinist project, which is to restore a fully masculinist society, right, against the LGBTQ community and women. So to my mind, I think at least for many provisional purposes, you can create a kind of you know, epistemological gap between quote unquote what really happened and we just place our hope in the jury system that the right verdict is reached here. And I think a deep feeling that we need a cultural reckoning about that level of of hatred of women that's not dependent on anybody being pure. That's a crazy standard. And to decry MAGA or or Putinism doesn't require finding a pure victim, a morally pure victim. I mean, that's just a crazy conflation of moral aims that uh, serves, serves only the interests of the aggressor. And it's been one of the real advances of Me Too. I mean, one of the things that was most remarkable about Ronan Farrow's story about Harvey Weinstein is that it included Asia Argento's tale, and she is an incredibly complicated woman, a, a, a woman who might be described as messy, which is another word that's been applied to this trial. Um, and her story is a messy one compared to the kind of cut and dry type of victim who was typically the sort that allowed a, st- a story about male bis- misbehavior to be considered publishable. Um, and so, you know, there's sort of like, an increasing respect for the messiness of human interaction and how that can't let men, powerful men off the hook. Um, and then there's just this incredible backlash to it that's really hard to appreciate if you don't spend all your time in the digital swamps. I mean, I'm reminded of our conversations with Charlie Warzel about the the kind of stop the steal type internet swamps. But, you know, I I was not watching lots of TikToks and YouTubes about this trial prior to preparing for this segment. Then I went and watched a bunch of them. And lo and behold, yes, the comments are incredibly disgusting. <laughs> like, it's just all these people being like, you know, wait for... I mean, they're largely pro dep They're vicious about herd. They seem quite sexist and vile. You know, the question has been raised about whether there are pro-debt bots or whether it's a concatenation of pro-debt bots and real online misogynists with nothing to do. But um, it's just so vicious and awful. Yeah, I think it's the ripple effect that that troubles me the most about this. I mean, to tell you the truth, I, I was pretty much assiduously looking away from it. It just seemed like something we weren't supposed to see, you know, when this went so viral over the past week or so. And you're right, Julie, it was everywhere on YouTube. Even my daughter, who has no opinion about the whole thing and barely knows who either person is, sort of knew that, you know, you had to take a side in the Depp Heard trial because that is just being, you know, fed into every single platform that she ever visits. And so, yeah, I was looking away from it. And I think aside from, you know, just the awful portrait that we get of this particular marriage and, you know, the misery that this is going to inflict on the life of Amber Heard probably for the rest of her career, right? Um, there's there's just the, the ripple effect it's going to have on the Me Too movement, on, you know, anything that involves listening to women or trying to pick apart he said, she said stories. And as I said, for domestic violence abuse reporting in the future. So boo all around and boo to the judge for televising it. All right. Well, let's let that uh, let's let that be the the last word for now. Um, all right. Moving on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? 
Steve, I have an endorsement that I think will be right up your alley. You were actually just speaking about this kind of movie recently about the um, the wonderful sort of light French relationship movie where everyone has perfect sweaters and is <laughs> drinking wine out of pleasing glasses and having deep conversations and romantic arguments, right? That genre. So there is a new movie in that genre that is actually connected with a filmmaker we just talked about on a recent show, Céline Siama. She didn't direct it, but she was one of the co-writers of this new French film called uh, Paris 13th District or 13e arrondissement in French. Have either of you heard of or seen uh, this movie on on streaming? It's around in a few places. No. So it's a Jacques Audiard movie who is sort of a specialist in in that genre of this kind of crisscrossing, you know, French farce romance. It's somewhere somewhere in between, I guess, comedy and drama. And it's just a sort of beautifully written and sweet example of that genre. One of the actors in it um, actually was one of the two women from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Noémie Merlin, who played the, the painter in that movie. It's... I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to make arguments for it as, you know, the, the greatest film of the year. I doubt doubt it would end up on a 10 best list for 2022 unless I really don't see eight or nine more great movies this year. But it really scratches that itch, not unlike the itch, Steve, of that um, French spy show that you loved. I mean, this mm. is not a, a crime drama in that way, but it has that kind of quintessential Parisianness. It's even right there in the title. And uh, it just it just plonks you right down in the in the arrondissement with the cafes and the fights and the sweaters. And uh, it's 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 quite sweet. So if you want some watching that is not going to tear you limb from limb <laughs> um, and it's going to just kind of give you a nice uh, romantic movie night, then uh, I would recommend Paris. 13th district mm. uh very cool i'm gonna watch that uh, forthwith uh julia what do you have i would like to endorse a bird watching app uh i believe this app has actually already been endorsed by our pal david plotz on the political gab fest and i have not endorsed it yet because i was a skeptic so the app is merlin it's a bird identifying app and it has for a long time existed and allowed you to describe like how big is the bird? What colors was it? What was its activity? Was it in a bush or soaring or on the ground? And then it will give you some suggestions as to what that bird is. I don't think that function is very useful, but they have introduced a new-ish function within the last year or two that allows you to essentially Shazam bird sounds, bird song, like you can hold it up, make a recording it will listen to what's going on near you and then tell you what birds they are. And the first couple of times I tried it, it seemed like maybe not 100% accurate and I just wasn't that sure about it. But I was um, uh, hiking in a couple of places with my husband this weekend and was able to use it to help me identify birds I wasn't sure about, which was a new use. And it's so good. I mean, it's, I mean, it just is what I described. It's Shazam for birdsong. You can like see a bird you've never seen before sitting on a little branch, singing into the sky and plonk it into the app. And it'll tell you that it's a Rufus Crown Sparrow and voila, there you've seen one. There it is. You can watch it more. You can study it more. You can learn more about it. It helped me determine a bullocks from a hooded Oriole this weekend. Uh, so anyway, the app is Merlin. Uh, the particular functionality is the the sound ID function. Uh, check it out. That's a great idea for an app that really needed to exist. So they, they hit a, a sweet spot. Well, and I, I, I'm like not a bird song birder. Like there are some people who not only are really good at identifying songs, um, they'll sometimes like count it as having seen a bird if they've just heard a bird, which to me is weird. Like 
having been in the general vicinity of a bird doesn't seem like the same thing as seeing it to me, but everyone makes their own little rules and laws. Um, but it is teaching me a lot. Like now, like the other thing I'm finding is like, okay, now I know what the spotted toey sounds like. And so I, I am able to kind of suss that out or the difference between these particular parakeets that there are and an acorn woodpecker, like it might turn me into a sonic birder, which is not the type of birder I have been. We'll see. I'll report back. Mm. All right. So uh, um, uh, occasionally I endorse something I've just started to read or am going to read. And as contradictory as that sounds, um, it's it's very sincere. And I follow up and I never find that I regret the proleptic endorsement. And so I think I'm going to do it again. There's a Guardian, very short Guardian review book review that verges on being an essay. It's just too short to really turn into a full essay, which is too bad. It's beautifully written. The occasion for the review is that um, the notebooks of Wittgenstein have finally been published in uh, in English. And um, they're fascinating. And this book reviewer, who I'd never heard of, Anil Gomes, and we'll link to the review, just gets at it so quickly and so beautifully about what's fascinating. You basically had this young, tortured philosopher who understands himself to be gay and of course it must be it's you know the austro-hungarian empire it's in the 19 teens um you know he must be deep he has to be perforce deeply closeted um he's tormented he's trying to create a philosophical language that's been purified of human arbitrariness and subjectivity a pure logic as it relates to how we actually use language and order our world his first great book the tractatus is about that, but but like a lot of great books, it's actually a monument to its own failure, that where he ended up was so much more interesting than his original plan, because he was honest about his inability to fulfill it. Well, as he's writing that, he, and I just to re- read this to give you some sense of what he was doing, um, the right-hand side of his notebook ledgers was set um, up to set out his evolving thoughts on logic and language. The left-hand side was saved for his personal notes written in a simple code in which the letters of the alphabet were reversed, so Z equals A, and so on. And so on the right, he's searching for this entirely quasi-empirical or at least non-arbitrary language you know, by which you can apprehend the world perfectly, but purged of human subjectivity and therefore human sexuality. And in this code, on the left side, he's confessing to his sexual desires, his proclivity to masturbate instead of write, (laughs) his depression, and his ambivalence about life. And of course, the arc of Wittgenstein's remarkable career is bringing these two things slowly together and understanding that a human being and the use of language together negate any possibility of an entirely positive, positivist or empirical apprehension of the world, that we exist in it as language using subjectivities, and that language is a tool for adaptive use and not a pure description of reality in itself. The, the personal drama of Wittgenstein coming to that understanding, he published only two books in his life. He published the Tractatus when he was somewhat young, and then he published much later, Philosophical Investigations, which is essentially written in something like the same style, but it's a series of parables about how this struggle for objectivity is, is ridiculous. It's self-contradictory. Um, I just, I had never really heard about these notebooks, so I haven't read them yet, but it's a perfect example of a book review that lays out 
with total economy and no showing off exactly why something is important and interesting and why you ought to read it. So thank you to this reviewer, and I'm going to buy that book forthwith and report back. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Dana, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, as always. Um, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. And our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Blues segment of the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Today we wanted to take a moment to remember Ray Liotta, who died last week at a quite young age, um, and to talk a little bit about his particular style of performance and and what we'll miss about it. Dana, you're our critic. Uh, t- tell us tell us what you thought of Liotta on screen and which performances of his you would send our audiences to. Well, yeah. I mean, in thinking about him over the long weekend, I actually rewatched one of his movies. Steve and I were were texting about this and saying that we should, you know, there were things that we wanted to revisit. And the first one that occurred to me was Copland, which was not by any means the best movie he was in or, you know, the the most influential one, Uh, but is, is an unusual performance from him. And I guess in order to talk about why it's unusual, I should talk about what the usual performance from Ray Liotta was. And that is even hard to say, because although he did pl- tend to play characters characterized by their intensity, he really did have a surprising um, stretch, you know, over the course of his career. But I would say, I guess the the, the quintessential Ray Liotta character is someone who is menacing yet vulnerable, right? Um, and the character he plays in Goodfellas, probably his most famous role, is 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 that all over you know it's about this this um this wannabe mobster and his his rise to power his ultimate fall from power and i think is one of scorsese's greatest achievements julia mm-hmm. i believe you you haven't seen goodfellas isn't that right that is correct oh man i just i hope if you go and revisit one Ray auto role you make it that because you know that certainly is one of his few actually leading performances he was much more often a supporting actor and one of his greatest as well as i think in my probably top three favorite martin scorsese films but yeah that kind of character who was capable of of immense violence and cruelty but who was also who had something human within him that was struggling against it um was i think what he was what he was best at and copland which is this movie from 1997 with what now seems like this unbelievable array of of movie stars in it i mean you know in talking about Tom Cruise, we're sort of talking about the disappearance of the movie star. Name some of the people in Copland with me, Steve. It's it's Ray Liotta in a supporting role, but it's also, you know, Harvey Keitel, Sylvester Stallone, Stallone, Robert De Niro. Niro. Yeah, everywhere you look. And then, you know, sort of great 80s villains like Robert Patrick is in it. And every place you look, there's, you know, a big macho movie star. But the movie is actually... very much about the um the the crumbling infrastructure of this town that's you know completely made up of all these macho cops and you know how it's essentially this this rotten place um full of corruption 
it's in in its way and it's somewhat primitive late 90s way is also a movie about racial justice i mean the instigating incident in the film is that this white cop not not liotta's character shoots two black teenagers and then goes on the run and all the action goes from there it has the very common 90s flaw that there are no actual black characters of any depth in it uh, but it is in in some way you know a gesture toward a movie about about racial violence in the world of cops but yeah ray liotta's character is just this fantastic tormented figure you know somebody who who is being driven mad you know by the by the corruption that he has bought into and it's just i won't give anything away but there's an incredible finale that is both violent and extraordinarily moving and he kind of shows up at this moment um that you don't expect him to and it's extraordinary that makes me think too of his debut in films and then i'll i'll hand it over to you too but the other moment that i think of and that people were posting on the internet upon learning that that he had passed was uh, his his debut, really, in film. He may have done small roles before this, but his first major role was in Something Wild, the Jonathan Demme film, and uh, which, if you remember Something Wild, is, is a movie that takes this sharp twist in the middle from being a kind of, you know, romantic... Um, romantic comedy almost to being this dark, almost horror style, you know, action thriller. Mm-hmm. And that twist happens at exactly the moment Ray yes. Liotta enters the movie <laughs> in this long, long yep. shot. Um, that you know, I watched several times the, the, on, upon hearing the news that he was gone. Where you see Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith, right? This couple that are kind of falling in love in this antic, crazy uh, adventure they're having, dancing on a dance floor. And without the camera cutting, Ray Liotta just comes dancing into the picture with his partner and sort of, you know, menacingly looms near them. And it's just one of the most explosive debuts on the screen you could imagine. Yeah, Dana, I mean, I, I just have to jump in. Like, like Something Wild is the one movie that I'd pick just because it's his debut. And not only that, that movie as a whole is the anti-Top Gun. They both came out in 86. It's, the you know, Top Gun is the moment where, where essentially, you know, that movie announces that 70s cinema is dead. And they were right, you know, but it was also dancing on the grave of 70s cinema in a way that I found, you know, offensive. But, um, and Demi... Jonathan Demme, who really, really broke through with something wild in 86, was saying alongside that, no, it's not. Nope. Over here. Over here. And it was a director-driven film. Of course, he went on to have an extraordinary career uh, you know, as an auteur-style director. Um, and in it, Liotta is this, like, you're right, it starts out as this, you know, uh, screwball road movie. Um, very funny. So it's moving, it's popping, it's light, uh, it's sexy. It's so good. And then uh, Leota enter the, enters the picture and he's just this sexy serpent. You know, he's just American id and violence. And, and you know, he's always had that element. I'll give you a very late, I mean, close to the end of his career performance. He plays the uh, divorce lawyer in the Noah Baumbach film uh, Marriage Story. And he's, you know, I hadn't seen him in a long time in a film. And it's a little bit, we all age, but it's a little bit shocking you know, uh, he was, he was, you know, he's very gray, he's heavy, but he's also just that it is still there. And he's like both in that movie, he's both the guy you want in your corner. Who's like in your foxhole, you want this bastard, right? This fucking tough bastard in your corner. At the same time, he's kind of talking the Adam driver character into a litigious situation you know it's that seductive thing that ray liotta did in all of his in all of his roles uh and um and of course goodfellas is just non-negotiable julia like you got it that blind spot needs to be filled asap yeah i uh if i had been 
not traveling this weekend and able to see something on a bigger than a laptop screen, I would have clicked it right up. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about that marriage story performance because both of the lawyers in that film are so good. Laura Dern obviously won an Oscar for her performance as the Scarlett Johansson character's lawyer, but Ray Liotta is the, I think the first lawyer consulted, um, by the Adam Driver character and they're just so brutal and adversarial and they pull the tender thing that is a marriage apart under this harsh light and um, that sense of, of kind of ruthlessness and aggression uh, that, that lay under Liotta's surface is, you know, didn't always show up in a suit in a fancy office, I think in his roles, but uh, it's used to such good effect in that film in kind of setting up the disjunct between how intimate a thing it would be to end a marriage and and what the kind of legal mechanisms are that allow you to do that. Dana, anything else you would send our listeners to? I mean, I, I feel like we, we should specify that this is not a, at all an exhaustive obit of Ray Liotti. He had such a... a varied and long career with so many great titles to watch but a couple that come to mind i mean a really against type role that he played was field of dreams yeah, you know if you have a so. high tolerance for for sentimental baseball movies he plays shoeless joe jackson the baseball star who you know essentially comes back from the dead to play some magical baseball it's a very atypical role for him in that it's you know a a, a really gentle and and sweet character and that's that's a lovely one. And then very much on the other end of the spectrum, just last year, he was in The Many Saints of Newark, that Sopranos movie that everyone hated in general. And I did not hate, if only because it had some really excellent performances in it, most notably from Alessandro Nivola, who plays the young Tony Soprano's uncle, and from Ray Liotta, who plays the father of, of that character. And man, the, the mob boss he plays in The Many Saints of Newark has very, very little of the milk of human kindness in him. And Ray Liotta makes him so scary. That is one of his characters that pretty much lacks the vulnerability that I was talking about, but that really capitalizes on, you know, the way that he could just stare you down with those ice blue eyes. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Steve, any, any final words from you? Uh, I was only going to echo what Dana said. Uh, Field of Dreams went against type, but to make that movie work, whoever's playing Shoeless Joe's got to really nail it. And he did it. It's an iconic movie for a reason. Right. Well, thank you so much, listeners, for supporting Slate, for listening to our show. We'll see you next week.